The scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 50 through 56. Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph, who, though a member of the council, had not agreed to their plan and action. He came from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and laid it in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed, and they saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Life can be ironic. Life can be ironic. You see, this week, Sally and I scored discounted but still pricey tickets to see Hamilton at the Kennedy Center. And as we took our orchestra-level seats in a sold-out theater, I looked around and couldn't believe my good fortune, even as I had just spent a small one. (laughs) And just before the lights went down, I pulled out that little piece of paper in the playbook announcing who would be acting that night in the show. And as excited as I was to be there, my eyes landed with some disappointment on the note that said that the lead role of Alexander Hamilton, the star of the show that I would probably only get to see one time, would be played that evening by the understudy. The understudy. Now, I knew that in a production of this magnitude, even the understudy would possess an abundance of star power. And it turned out he did. He was great. But yet, I didn't want to see the understudy. I wanted to see the star. It seems that star power is in the eye of the beholder. And that's a primary theme of today's sermon entitled Ordinary People, Joseph of Arimathea. A sermon that you thought would have been delivered by the primary preacher of this series. (laughs) But ironically, in Larry's absence, you get the understudy who bemoaned the presence of the understudy. What goes around comes around. But in the words of Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton that echoes throughout his musical, I am not throwing away my shot. And with God, the triune God, playing the starring role, disappointment shall not be our end. Let us pray. God, you course through the life of human history. You course through the life of our history, our present, our future. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart do justice to that which you have promised us. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Okay, let's have a review, take a shot at remembering where we have been in this sermon series. One where Larry has helped us to reinterpret the lives of ordinary characters in the Bible so as to reveal how extraordinary they were as ancestors of our faith. We've encountered characters like Orpah, not merely the namesake of Mrs. Winfrey, nor the one whom history has judged to have bailed on her mother-in-law, but a woman to be celebrated for the dignity of her decision to remain with her people and share with them the sweet-smelling perfume of home. We saw Lot's wife, the unnamed but salty spouse who is usually condemned for her apparent disobedience in looking back at the destruction of Sodom, but who now we might honor for the devotion and the grief that led her to turn back to see her loved ones perishing behind her. We discovered Huldah, Not just a forgotten prophetess, but the queen of canonization, a founding mother who helped birth our belief in the inspiration of scripture. And then there was Paltiel. Be honest, before Larry preached about him, how many of you had heard of this whimpering husband of the wife who was taken away from him? And yet, now we have come to know a man whose love, as Larry so poetically put it, rises from the pages of Scripture, crosses cultures, eras, and time zones. When we hear the cries of that ordinary man unashamedly weeping for the woman he loves, we are reminded, Larry said, that the most important thing in the world can be the love of one human being for another. In these sermons, we have come to witness the wonder and the power that is held by those who can give life-meaning meaning to someone's story. Such is the power behind the musical Hamilton. Before it entered our nation's consciousness, many of us only knew the man Hamilton as the historical figure pasted on our $10 bill. Now, because of Miranda's rhapsodic production, Hamilton has become a newly minted icon, celebrated by thousands and thousands as a tragically brilliant man whose humble beginnings and insatiable ambition mirrored those of his nascent country. At one point in the show, General George Washington observes to Hamilton, history has its eyes on me. And Washington confides that he had wished he had known when he was young and dreamed of glory that we have no control over who lives, who dies, and who tells our story. Who tells your story? That is such an important question. It is the primary question of this sermon. 
And uh, at this point, you may yourself be questioning and asking, will this understudy ever get to the story of Joseph? We can hear the ghost of Huldah screaming out, talk about the text, will you? Yes, yes, Huldah, we will. But today our focus will not be so much on the Joseph of this text, but the real star of the show, the one with the power to interpret the man and give meaning to his life and to ours. So let's review what Luke says about Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph celebrates him and says, Joseph was a good and righteous man, telling us that although Joseph belonged to the council that shamed, or excuse me, schemed and plotted to have Jesus crucified, Joseph apparently disagreed with this course of action. Luke shares that Joseph was waiting expectantly for the kingdom of God, reminding us of Simeon and Anna in chapters before who joyfully beheld the baby Jesus as a light of revelation and a glory for all people. Through Luke, we learn that Joseph dared to ask Pilate for permission to take down the crucified Jesus from the cross, which he did alone, and wrapped him in linen cloths with the same kind of care and precision that we see today in soldiers who fold the flag that was draped over the coffins of those who have given their life in service to their country. Joseph carried this linen-wrapped Jesus and his dead body to an empty, unused tomb, while behind him the faithful women of Jesus' crew followed behind as if in a funeral procession and watching Joseph lay that body into the tomb for its final rest, just as Sabbath began. Through Luke, we are given the portrait of a man whose history we might have forgotten, whose history we might not have celebrated. It's true, though, that Joseph's story could be framed with a different lens. We could tell his story in a way where he does not come off as such a good and righteous person. We could point out, using the words of the text and the words not in the text, that although Joseph was opposed to the council's plan, we have no record that he actually said a word against it. Perhaps Joseph kept his lips sealed, following the advice of the Aaron Burr of the musical Hamilton, who counseled his more vocal peers to smile more, talk less. For it is in saying much you give much for your enemies to use against you. Furthermore, even if Joseph hadn't, spoken up, he could have at least walked out. Luke tells us that once the council found Jesus guilty of blasphemy, they rose in assembly as if, as like a body, and together they brought him to Pilate. 
And Joseph, as far as we may infer, was very much in step with his peers, rising with them, walking with them on the way to Pilate, and accompanying them as they shouted, Crucify! over the protestations of Pilate. Sure, Joseph did take the dead Jesus off of the cross, but does that mean we should necessarily clear him of carrying Jesus to that cross? I ask this question not to malign Joseph to do some good old character assassination of which we know so well in these parts. Nor do I say all this to contradict Luke. Merely I want to highlight what we have witnessed together over these last several weeks. That it really matters greatly. Not just that someone's story is told, but who tells it and what meaning they attach to it. Like Hamilton and Washington after him, Joseph had no idea who would live to tell his story or that his story would even be told, but it was by Luke. And because of Luke, we do remember Joseph as a righteous and devout man who alone among his peers desired a different outcome for Jesus than death and who alone handled the dead body of our Messiah with such sincere care even as he himself was not able to worship that man as we do. History has its eyes on Joseph through the gaze of Luke, and Luke's gaze has made all the difference. Friends, brothers, sisters, neighbors, it makes all the difference in the world whose eyes hold the gaze of our life, our life story. And it makes all the difference who it is that will give that story, our story, its meaning. The message of these several weeks, the message of Scripture, the message of the church is that those eyes, that interpretation belong to God. The God who, through the story of Joseph and the so-called ordinary characters of Scripture, are now seen to have lived lives which we may now perceive as abundant in meaning. The God of Scripture is not only the origin of our stories, but the final interpreter of them as well. Which means that we ought not be too confident or too insecure about where we and others will stand in the eyes of history. The sheep may turn out to be the goat. The one who was the sinner may turn out to be the saint. The one voted most likely to succeed may end up lost and lonely, and the loser may end up the celebrated leader. Our stories are not finished. Our legacies are not yet cemented in stone, which is both a warning and a promise. In the musical, we find that Hamilton's anxious desire to sculpt his own legacy led him to nearly shatter it. 
So if we worry so much about how a future statue might portray us, we are more likely to turn our present selves into stony approximations of living beings rather than people. People who have a future in which to be remembered if they would just let themselves live into it. Ultimately, we ought not to live as those trying to secure our legacy, but as those whose legacies in God shall be secured. We may not be able to dictate how our story will be told by history, but we can do what we can to give that story some good material, to do what we can now to walk humbly, to do justice, and to love kindness with one another in word and in deed. We need not to shoot for grand gestures, grand gestures. Sometimes it is the small actions that history can use to great effect. Recently, a friend of mine shared with me his experience as a catcher playing collegiate baseball. One day, after seeing a pitcher from a different team, the opposing team, having a hard time finding the strike zone, my friend, the catcher, approached him afterwards and offered him some feedback on his delivery. You're landing on your heels, he told him. Try landing on the balls of your feet. And then my friend gave the pitcher a good 20 minutes with which he might practice this new delivery, and he found that it worked. The ball sailed right where it was supposed to go. Fast forward to next, the next time these two teams met on the field, and this pitcher was on the mound with my friend, the catcher, up to the plate at the bat, up to bat at the plate. The score was lopsided, and therefore the outcome of that at bat mattered little. And readying himself in the batter's box, my friend looked up at the pitcher who glanced or gestured to him in such a way as if to say, thanks again for the help. Here comes a pitch that you ought to be able to hit. <laughs> and there it was. A juicy, fat fastball right down the middle of the plate, which my friend, the catcher, knocked out of the park. And as he rounded the bases, they both gave each other a little wink of the eye or a little nod of the hat, as if to say, I'm thankful. Not just for what was shared, but what was given. Not a huge story. Didn't change anything in our world, per se. But in telling the story, I could see my friend's face light up, and in hearing his story, I could feel myself come aglow. And that story will forever color and attach meaning for me in how I see my friend, and it will forever color how I see this pitcher whom I will never meet. The box score of that game will say that someone lost, but history in its telling will say they were both part of a larger victory. We all know that history is written 
by the victors. And the story of Scripture writes all of human history in the extraordinary victory of God in Christ, in whom our stories will find their enduring legacy and their eternal meaning. And though we are not the stars of this drama, we have a part to play as a cast of understudies through whom the great show of God's love will go on with all of its remarkable star power. Like Joseph of Arimathea, may we also be eagerly expectant, confident that our ordinary lives with all we have done and all we will have failed to do, will in the music of God's history carry the tune of our Lord's extraordinary life of meaning. We cannot control what people will write or say about us. We cannot control who lives or who dies or who tells our story. But Christ lived and Christ died, and Christ will come again. In him, God's story has its eyes on us, telling us who we are and how we are to be remembered in the scope of human history, a human history that in God becomes divine. So may each of us say in how we live and how we move, and in how we have our being, I am not throwing away my shot.